0: Hey everyone, you just pressed play on Sithcast, the official podcast of the Seattle International Film Festival, the 47th edition, and also the first virtual edition of the festival just wrapped up on April 18th, but don't worry, we've still got a few more great Sifcast episodes for you, highlighting some of the most memorable roundtable discussions from the festival. And if you missed any of our previous episodes that premiered during festival, make sure to check out all of our 2021 Roundtable and filmmaker interviews on the SIF website at SIF.net slash SIFCast. You can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Our next episode is the Bold Virtuoso Roundtable, a discussion with documentary filmmakers about capturing the legacies of Amy Tan, Chuck Connolly, and Rita Moreno all virtuosos who mastered the art of being audacious. Enjoy!
1: Well, thank you everyone for joining us for the 47th Annual Seattle International Film Festival and um, for joining us for this live roundtable, Bold Virtuosos, with the filmmakers of documentaries about extraordinary artists. My name is Sujin Chan and I'm one of the festival programmers. Um, I'm joining you today from the traditional homelands of the Duwamish and of the Coast Salish tribes bands. Indigenous individuals and communities have stewarded these lands since time immemorial and continue to do so to this day. Um, Acknowledging the original inhabitants and the descendants of those lands that we occupy is just one small piece of healing our history. I hope that you'll take some time to learn about the history of the lands wherever you are and look into ways to take part of the healing efforts in your local communities. We're excited to be joined this evening by producer of Amy Tan, unintended memoir, Cassandra Jabola, and director of Chuck Connolly into the light, Benjamin Schwartz. Unfortunately, Miriam Perez Riera, director of uh, Rita Morano, just a girl who decided to go for it is no longer able to join us due to a travel disruption. So we're really sorry that it didn't work out for her to be able to join our discussion today. But welcome Cassandra and Benjamin. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to introduce yourselves, where you're calling from, and a brief description of your film. And, Benjamin, why don't we start with you?
2: My name is Benjamin Schwartz. I am the director and executive producer of Chuck Connolly Into the Light. I am in Connecticut right now, streaming live. And um, my film is about an artist who, um, you know, has a very checkered past. He had a previous documentary film made about him ten years ago when he was an alcoholic, and uh, it didn't go well for him. The experience and his marriage ended. There were all sorts of there were all sorts of problems, and I found myself filming Chuck Connolly eleven years later, approximately. And the story is about him deep in isolation, surrounded by all of his life's work, his paintings, everything he's created about a person who's a true and true artist and about uh him discovering himself and kind of allowing himself to re-enter the world and participate and be a part be a member of society again um and there's a lot of painting and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of creative art that takes place throughout the whole film
3: hi i'm cassandra Jabola. i'm the producer of amy tan unintended memoir and um the film is an intimate portrait of the life and work of author Amy Tan, and um, told in her own words and directed by her dear friend, uh, James Redford. And I'm, I'm calling in from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, the land of the Ohlone and the Raimatush people.
1: Cassandra, maybe we could start with you. Can you share a little bit about the genesis of the film and deciding to share this particular artist's story? Yes, yeah, so
3: um, I was working with James Redford on a, a previous documentary called Playing for Keeps, which is about the importance of play in our our daily lives for adults, children, seniors, animals, and the science of play and how it affects you biologically, psychologically, and we were uh, interviewing different characters, uh, kind of like uh, vignette stories of people with different types of stressful jobs and what their form of play was. Like one of the characters was Lester Holt, um, an anchorman uh, and reporter journalist and his form of play was playing um, bass guitar in a jazz band. And uh, there was a woman who worked on Wall Street and she would paddleboard. And one of uh, the initial interviews was with Amy Tan, who's a famous writer and uh, her form of play, um, which you see in the film, but I don't really want to give it away, is that uh, she has several forms of play, but she is in a rock cover band. And um, my my fellow producer, Karen Pritzker, uh, saw the interview and thought, oh, she needs her own separate film. So she is not in the film playing for keeps and um, we were able to make a film that's just about her life story and her work.
1: Great. and um. Benjamin, I know you started talking a little bit about it, but how exactly were you able to um, meet Chuck and s- start with him sharing his story?
2: Yeah, it's a fairly interesting story. I was doing a lot of EPK work at the time and um, <clears throat> I wanted to embark on my first documentary project. Um, I had watched the film, New York Stories, and was enthralled with Martin Scorsese's piece. So. I found out that Chuck Connolly was the inspiration behind that short film. It's a great film, by the way, um, if anyone's interested in watching. Um, But I reached out to uh, Chuck's website thinking that I would get a response back from, you know, somebody working for him, something along those lines. I sent out a very general inquiry and Chuck actually reached out back to me on the phone a few days later and the next thing I knew, I was at his house. And once I uh, found myself in Chuck's house, um, I think everything changed then and there. The uh, atmosphere, it, it consumed me. I was surrounded by all of this artwork, the fumes of the cigarette smoke, <laughs> the, the paint fumes. Um, and as he was showing me the house, he told me another documentary had been made. But by the time I had, I, I think it was, I, I drove all the way, at the time I was living in New York, it, I drove two hours out to Philly to, I spent a couple hours with him. By the time I left, I knew I needed to make a film with this guy. Uh, and I think he was almost on the same page. So I felt it was, it was meant to be. And I think he feels the same way too, us finding each other.
1: Okay. And, and you were saying before we started live that it took a couple of years?
2: Yeah, I've known Chuck for a little over three years. Uh, the process of um, filming this project was very long because I needed to earn his trust because he had a previous documentary made about him and you know he felt slighted and he had a bad taste in his mouth from that past project. It didn't bring the kind of success or notoriety. The previous film really focused on alcoholism and kind of sensationalized that. Um, That wasn't what we were trying to do, but because he had all of these past experiences, getting that comfort between us, getting that trust was something that took a long time. And um, I wanted to really showcase artwork and the house is full of five or six or 7,000 pieces of art. So just from a cinematography standpoint, the complexity uh, just filming all of that artwork in a way that would be very engaging for a viewer requires a lot of time, and I was fortunate that Chuck allowed this. He allowed me to enter his life and to follow him for many years. So, um, yeah, it was a long, it was a long process.
1: You know, the other two documentaries kind of took kind of a like a, uh, a they they kind of covered the entire career of both Amy Tan and Rita Moreno. And for you, it seemed like the the film was more focused kind of on the now. And so, even though like you were covering his, the span of his work, I was just wondering how you decided to c- cover the story that way, where you really focused more on the now and the future rather than in the past, yeah.
2: Well, yeah. So we made a decision very early on that the last documentary that was made on Chuck Was much more comprehensive it showed him as a child it filled in the whole past it was his his previous marriage was incorporated into it so from the get-go we didn't want to recreate the same thing i think when i was like pitching him at the time not even a pitch but i was really into chef's table at the time and i said listen i said we don't need to reinvent the wheel we don't need to recreate the old documentary Let's figure out a way to showcase your art and who you are now and, and, and just follow this journey through. And, I, and that was kind of the starting point. We wanted to create a new story, whether it ended bad or good. We, we wanted it to be unique to itself. And we were really, really vigilant not to recreate the old documentary. Nobody, want, nobody wanted that. Nobody wants that. It needed to be a new piece and that was something that was very relevant for the entire process.
1: Would you recommend that the two documentaries be seen as companions of each other, or?
2: They can, what? they they would work very well as companion pieces, but they're two completely different projects. Um, again, not to keep saying the same thing over, but one is Chuck was in a really bad place. He was. An alcoholic and the film was very entertaining his last documentary but it really focused on him being a drunk and being outrageous and you know the marriage that he was in it it kind of pinpointed all of these kind of like sensational storylines and, and that's and that's how um from my understanding and i think chuck would say something i think that's why he feels he was burned in the process it's everyone became successful on his shoulders in the last project and he thought he was giving them what they wanted but you know i think you know he was poking the fire you know they're feeding him booze and doing all sorts of wild stuff in that last documentary when i met chuck he was a sober guy so mm. That was the four, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have participated if he was an alcoholic right. um, or he was still drinking. Just personally, I don't think I would wanna pursue that. Um, so he was sober and, you know, very uh, spiritual and he had a lot of philosophies and listening to him talk about his artwork was, you know, when I met him, it was it was an experience. And, and I left his house not only thinking about buying artwork, um, but I left his house, just really thinking about the man that I had just met and kind of the atmosphere and environment I was in, I kind of was hypnotized by it. And For any aspiring documentary filmmaker, that's all you're really looking for in life. You just wanna be hypnotized by something because the process of making a documentary film is not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. It is a long process, Most documentaries lose money. You know, you have to love it. So I can't spend three years of my life on something that I don't care about passionately um, because it'll fall apart because, you know, it'll even fall apart in post-production. Nobody thinks about the process of making the film, uh, how much of that lands when you're revisiting it with your editor for years throughout the filming and after. So, again, you really have to be in love with your subject or in love with the idea of what you're trying to accomplish to see a project all the way through. And I um, and think that I got that. I got a taste of that from the first instance I met Chuck. He's very charismatic and, uh, and, and, and that's real. That, char- that charisma that he has is real.
1: Yeah and um one of the one of the audience members asks if um because he had a bad experience with the first documentary if he asked for approval or veto power or editing rights or
2: (laughs) no 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 there was after i I think after the first year I, i had collected his trust when he watched the film it was a very nerve wracking experience. I watched it together with him. And, you know, that was, i it could have gone both ways because I, I painted a very fair picture of him. You know, he's a brilliant artist. He's a brilliant human being, but he can be outrageous and loud and angry, and vicious. Um, so I was afraid that he'd be like, you did it again because my documentary is a fair portrait of him for good or for bad. Um, but yeah i think that uh, i think that the process overall uh, uh again i keep coming back to it just like all documentary films and so and unfortunately some projects you have a very short timetable so that trust may might not evolve but again i was very fortunate that i had a very long window to work with chuck
1: cassandra in contrast to um that the Chuck Connolly documentary that really kind of did focus on the present and looking at the future. Um, The Amy Tan documentary had this big job of like covering an entire career and lifetime. And I was wondering um, how, how y'all decided to, to approach like um, Amy Tan and her career. And, and also like, even before her career started, a, a big chunk of that documentary is before, you know, her childhood before she even starts writing. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, we did cover her entire life from when she was born until now. And um, I think one of the things that we were blessed with is that, you know, she is still around to tell her story. You see other biopics where it's about someone who's not around anymore. So uh, our crew filmed her at, you know, doing what she normally does in life, her her different activities and hobbies and also uh, speaking engagements. uh, book readings, all kinds of stuff like that, and in inter- and in all of those, interviewing her about her writing, her process, how she came to the way she writes, and the subject matter she covers, and the inspirations for her different books, and um, a couple of the speaking engagements she had. If you notice in the film, one of those when she's on stage, um, and one of her key interviews are what make the thread of the film. And then we had access to a huge archive of hers, a personal family archive that she had been collecting for probably her whole life. And then, um, which did include some home movies, videos, uh, film negatives, stills from her, from press, from other family members, um, photos her dad had taken in the 50s and 60s, um, photos from even earlier than that of her family in China Um, So we digitized a a huge uh, archive of hers and weave that into the present day of hearing her recount her life. And then another way that we weaved um, her life and history into it was through her reading passages from her books, which although most of them are fiction and two of them are um, autobiographical, they all fit together as the pieces of her, um, her story.
1: Yeah, the amount of archival material um, that she was able to pr- provide you all, and that you were able to um, access, just was really deep and broad. So yeah, um, the three documentaries that um, were p- are part of this roundtable. All this, all of the, in all of their stories, the artists really faced incredible challenges and painful parts of their past and. You know, um, I'm not sure if I'm reading like too much into it, but it seemed like these obstacles also helped inform and spur their creativity. And um, while I don't necessarily prescribe to the belief that like surviving pain only makes you stronger, at least in these three artists' lives, it really did seem like overcoming these difficult times did embolden them and really make their work um, so much more, just alive. And it really does take a delicate hand to share these really fragile and vulnerable parts of people's stories without having them overshadow the subject in their work. And so I was wondering um, if you could share a little bit about that approach of like um, approaching like the challenges without having it kind of overshadow the story.
3: I think it can be very tricky um, to cover personal trauma with any subject. And it's really just about how comfortable they are talking about it. And uh, for Amy, I think we were lucky that she does do so much public speaking. You know, she does speaking engagement. She she does a lot of, like I said, book readings. She, she teaches, she's given a TED talk, you know, so she is very articulate in being able to describe the events that happened to her and also open up about it and, you know, Um, it can get emotional and we can always turn the camera off when it's too much but really I think um, and not to speak for her I think she knows what she wants to say and how she wants to present it and she's very clear on on what has happened to her and how it's informed her process and her writing where honestly I mean she made it she made it easy for us and if anything it was a plethora of uh, so many stories, deep stories, traumatic stories, not traumatic stories um, inspiring stories that I mean we could have made a film twice as long and if anything it was how to put together in the edit what would what made the most sense in her through in telling the story with her through line and um, but yeah, with the sensitivity, I mean, there, there's a lot in there, you know, there's rape, there's, uh, there's just, there's psychological things that I don't want to give away too much, but, you know, as long as she was comfortable, we were comfortable in what she was sharing. And I think, um, she wanted to clarify some of the things that are in her books that were inspired by things that happened to her, things that happened to her mother, her grandmother, um, generational trauma, you know, I think it was important for her to get it out there into the world so that people have a better understanding of her writing and of her in general as a writer a writer and an artist.
1: One of the audience members asked, was there anything that she didn't want y'all to go get into? No, not,
3: <laughs> no, no, not, not really. It wasn't like we couldn't cover a certain thing. So for us, it was just, what do we want to reveal and when in terms of peeling back all the layers of her. But uh, honestly, I've worked on other, uh, biopics and it was it was just such a natural organic flow of she's already been telling her own stories and her own work so to be able to sit down and ask her how how did this affect this book or what was the inspiration for this you know it just flowed out of her very naturally and I think that that was uh what we were going for because we didn't want the film to be someone else telling her story. We re- we really just let her tell her own story in her own words and then put it together from there.
1: Yeah, that, that actually um, sounds a lot like what Benjamin was saying about Chuck wanting to t- control his own narrative. And I guess the same question for you, Benjamin. Were, were there things that he just didn't want to cover?
2: No. Um, he allowed me to ask all the questions. The caveat to that is, if I asked the wrong question, I was going to get a, a response, um, and that the spectrum of that response was uh, was the interesting part um, because, you know, Chuck has been inside the space. He's had um, great successes, failures, successes, failures. So he's lived uh, a long life, and he's been painting. So before I entered his life, you know. A younger guy trying to make a film about him—he's already experienced it all pretty much. Um, and I think the learning process was kind of how to go about asking questions uh, in a time frame, letting things breathe. Sometimes, it, again, like Cassandra said, that's super important. Um, but he was an open book. Um, some things though uh, you got the ugly end of the spectrum in terms of response because, not necessarily because he's a bad person, but because he felt so burned in the past. A great way to get on Chuck's bad side is if you want to start negotiating or starting to place value on his artwork, like if a prospective buyer, and I'm sure that's the same case for any artist, but you know, Throughout his life, he's had people trying to exploit every aspect of his life uh, from his paintings, from him being on screen from him, people using his life story in actual film. So, um, again, he would answer all my questions. Uh, I think the process was kind of identifying um, how to ask the questions. And then if there was a response that provoked him in some way to identify whether there needs to be a breathing period or the opposite, whether I just need to kind of go through all these questions now and if it's ugly or if it's loud, it just needs to happen now and then it needs to be done. At the end of the day, uh, it's like like a marriage. You really can't leave your subject unhappy. So we never left the day on bad terms, even if the day was hard and you're filming and doing a whole bunch of stuff, most of the uh, contentious components of the film was, I was trying to invoke certain levels of change in him because my subject was very isolated. Mm -hmm. He's basically isolated recluse, surrounded by his artwork and his world and his world's very enclosed. So I kept telling him, I'm gonna try to make you do anything I can to get you out of this universe. And we both understood that that would come with successes and failures. And if you watch the film, you'll see that, you know, most of the failures are, I'm at the blunt end of those failures. Um, and it was something that I was willing to embrace. And after a while, you know, the latter part of our production, we were just friends. We were filming, I was mm-hmm. filming paint, I was covering these things. So a lot of the contention that you see in the film w- happened and was filmed in the beginning, the beginning of a oh. three year process. So a lot of those little snippets where he's trying to tell me what's what, regardless of whether he's right or wrong, I think we spoke about this previously, is a lot of the times what he's passionate about and what he's saying is right. It feels right. You can as a viewer, you can understand where the frustration's coming from, but you're experiencing it in, in a very as a viewer and me personally, you're experiencing it in a very ugly way sometimes. And I think that that was the main part of the film was this film wasn't about to show him that this is a guy that can be ugly. This is a character study about a person that's deeply trying to understand where his life is, trying to evolve past it. And in the process, which is the most important thing, is painting fantastic art. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful, beautiful art throughout the whole process. So again, it was a learning experience.
1: Yeah, some filmmakers would choose to edit out all of the antagonism that he very sometimes directly and um, expressed towards you. Um, And I, 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 I don't know if I've seen a documentary quite like this where the subject's antagonism of the director is so so bold or so blatant and i'm wondering how you came to the decision to keep that footage in and like you said like um and how you were able to keep that relationship kind of flowing in the in the midst of all that antagonism
2: this is a a great question that happened in post-production it was uh very considered um because as if you're trying to make a documentary film you're, you don't want to incorporate yourself. You want what you're doing, you want your subject to be the focus. So in a sense, incorporating myself, even if it's the, at the blunt end of some of these exchanges that I had with Chuck, was something that we considered. And ultimately, uh, Robert Carter and myself, Robert Carter is the editor, we decided that the process of me trying to get through to Chuck and all of these little instances that happen is so beneficial and so part of the story, especially for filmmakers, cinephiles, people that are in love with you know, just making films. It's watching me go through this is something that we understood people would take deep pleasure in um, uh, as just like a very bare bones way to understand this is sometimes what it's like to really make a film. And we were, again, we spent a lot of energy making sure that it wasn't about me. It was about the process and that every time I was incorporated, whether in negative or in positive capacity, it was moving along his storyline, his um, kind of, the way he perceives thing and the way kind of he's evolving throughout the film. Um, so again, it was, uh, that question kind of encapsulates 75% of the conversations back and forth between my editor, because we could have made a really interesting film and not had anything, and not had any of those components in it. But in the end, we decided that not only was it necessary, but it added a lot of value to showcase him because you need, you need there to be an honest yin and yang for a subject, you know, and again, for, for for Chuck, we didn't want to make a fluff piece. We didn't want to just be just one beautiful, I could have made a 90 minute montage of this guy painting and there would have been a lot of people that would have been into that because he's such a fantastic painter and he has such a fantastic library of artwork, but it wouldn't have benefited anybody. It would have just been a one beautiful montage. So we, we needed something that would kind of showcase who this guy is and and again since it was a very present story it wasn't it wasn't like Cassandra's film where we had this a great film by the way um, but it it, it was it, we didn't have to tell this huge long story we we basically showed one snippet in this man's life and we wanted that snippet to almost feel like its own artwork his story to feel like his own painting while he's painting all this other art. I hope that doesn't sound too confusing. Um,
1: I was particularly struck um, in the Amy Tan documentary about the use of animation. It's used, um, I think, so smartly and um, really telling us like part of the story. And I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit more about the decision to use animation as a device and
2: yeah.
3: Yes, um, our director, uh, James Redford, who sadly passed away a month before we finished editing the film, and which is why he's not on this panel right now, Um, loved being able to use animation in all of his films. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But in this film, we just knew that it would be the perfect thing because it's the film is about a writer. And we go so deep into a lot of her different novels that there are some things that you can cover with archival if they're about her life or, you know, news footage, media, things like that. But there are certain things that are, I I, I don't know if it's ethereal, but um, there's certain things that are purely emotional, but we didn't have co- footage to cover for it. We might be hearing her reading a passage from her book or hearing an interview, but we needed something to, um, to manifest it visually. And What we loved about working with the artist and her name is Javiera Lopez and um, she's an amazing animator based in Santiago, Chile, and we did all of it remotely during COVID um, Is that it's not all literal of what's being said. Some of it was very abstract and really just conveyed the emotion of the story that was being told or the scene and it wasn't just literally what was being described and I think that's much more powerful, just conveying what you're supposed to feel or what Amy is feeling when she's telling this anecdote from her past. Um, And that's why the animation played such a big role because there's so many different ways to use animation and motion graphics. It can be an infographic where you might be doing a very scientific or political documentary where you need to get the info on the screen to help audiences absorb it or because of a lack of footage. But for us, it was really neither. It was really just To convey the emotion and the artistry of her her writing um, through a different form of art which uh, somehow really worked and tied the film together
1: um speaking of director redford um it's really sad and must be really bittersweet to get this film in front of audiences without him i'm wondering if he shared any specific guidance on how he wanted the film to be presented or if you can share more about how it's been um the presentation of this film's been impacted by his absence
3: uh we worked very very closely with him and he his main goal was just to really do amy's story justice so you know they were personal friends which is why um he knew her to begin with and had interviewed her for that other film about play um and you know Amy says herself no one else ever wanted to make a documentary and of course I'm not going to just let someone do it I want it to be someone that I trust and she trusted him so of course you know as Benjamin mentioned earlier it's all about the trust between the filmmaker and the subject which is which we definitely had there but for him he just really wanted to get it right for her sake and for her to approve of it and what um, throughout the process you know we all worked very collaboratively. Collaboratively together, our team that uh, you know our 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 producers and um, cinematographers who did the filming, as well as our editor who put everything together, and and Jamie, we all worked very closely together on the film, and everybody gave their different input of how how best to tell the story. And he really worked with us on it until really four weeks before we picture locked. Um, uh, and he was, and you know, Amy Amy was able to, um, what was really great for everybody on the team because obviously it was a very deep loss was that we were all able to know later that he was able to to share the fine cut with her and she was able to write back to him her approval of it and that she she liked it and he was able to read that before he passed. So he was able to get that closure, but we knew that she, and then after that, she um, the the team really banded together to finish the film and you know it was a, a huge push because we had to get it um, ready for um, Sundance back in uh, January February and and Amy has really been a huge support helping get the film out because you know it is about her and she's helped be a spokesperson for it you know joining us for Q&A's and um, and whatnot and you know I know it's not just because she wants her story out there it's because she She's doing it for him because he did this for her, you know, uh, getting her story out there.
1: Speaking of um, getting the story out, this is an unusual time to try to get films out. And I'm wondering um, uh, what particular um, approaches or challenges are you facing in trying to get this in front of audiences during a time where people can't actually or are not going into theaters quite yet?
2: Well, we're still kind of in the middle of the process of running it through the film festival circuit and kind of building traction. I think um, I I spoke to Chuck, some possibility we might screen the film once there's some sort of normalcy uh, back in this world with vaccinations and stuff where, you know, we can have audience and kind of engage Maybe do some screenings and some museums, and kind of continue the road to, you know, whatever distribution channel it finds, whatever platform it ends up on. Um, but yeah, the the pro, it, yeah, it's not not the best year uh, to to be a filmmaker. Um, you know, you're obviously everyone has their films, everyone's competing for the same slots, so. Uh, it it was an unexpected challenge. Um, But again, uh, every part of making a film, whether it's a documentary film or or a feature film or a short film is uh, you're climbing Everest for every project. Um, So the idea that this is a roadblock, this is just one of like 10 more roadblocks that we'll experience on the distribution path of this film. Uh, So, take it with strides, it's the best you can do.
1: Yeah, well, and then also congratulations to Cassandra because the documentary is gonna be presented in the upcoming PBS American Master's session um, awesome. season. So that's wonderful, it'll get some viewership that way. But is there also hope that once people are going into theaters that it will be screened in cinema?
3: So we're, we're still in talks about that, but you know, we were lucky that before we even started the festival uh, process, we already had um, PBS American Masters locked and, you know, traditionally I know the, the, the landscape is constantly changing, but traditionally you make the independent film and then you sh- you apply to festivals and you try to get in because getting it seen at festivals will potentially attract distributors. So we were lucky that we already had a distributor before, but I still believe that festivals are really important because it's a way to get people to see the film and you don't know what your distribution is going to be. So it, it can be seen in different areas. And for me, you want the film to be seen by as many eyes as possible. Otherwise, why did you make it? And, you know, making a film and then distributing a film during COVID has been a, a roller coaster, but, and especially because all the festivals, they're taking fewer films than they usually do. It's more competitive and we can't all meet together. We can't see it on the big screen. But the one thing that I will say that has been pretty cool about it is that it's so much more accessible, you know, like Sundance, for example, everybody um, would have to go, you would have to go to Park City, Utah. So not everybody could go to it. But even with this, I'm not, I'm not in Seattle right now for the Seattle International Film Festival, but we're able to tune in and connect in this virtual way. But it really is more accessible to more people, I think. And that's one that's one of the few pluses that I found in it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's an evolving landscape and as much as it is competitive, there's also such a need for content right now because everybody's been stuck at home. So it's been interesting.
1: You know, um, because both of the artists in these films are, are still living and they're still actively producing creative content, brilliant creative content, I'm wondering um, a little bit about the approach on how to decide to close out a film when people are still Kind of in the middle of their careers.
2: All things have to end eventually. You have to um, you have to let go of something, and I, I think that's uh, more of a post production thing. It's like letting go of an edit, letting the world see it. You know, any artist, any director, any filmmaker, anybody. You want to have an eternity with your project because of the amount of energy that goes into it. As uh, even even my parents. Um, I recently spoke to them. They can't even grasp how much energy has gone into this one project. Like they don't even understand. They're like, oh, you just, you made that film and now it's doing this thing. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I've been doing this thing for four years or three years, whatever the number is. We were editing while we were filming. So we collectively had an idea of when the end game is. But in, in terms of a timetable there was no real timetable because we had a really our subject was really great. Chuck, and our friendship my my friendship with Chuck is just really solid. So I could have filmed him in perpetuity probably, and it would have been great for him because you know we liked each other's company. And when I was there, I would be filming and letting the focus would be about art. And Chuck Connolly's favorite place in this world is not only, to paint, but it's to talk about art. He has a very deep, deep, deep knowledge of all art. You know, he'll watch. He's watched every documentary, read every book there is about art. So, so again, it's a, it was a very positive thing. But because we were doing the post production while we were uh, filming the project, we knew that we had uh, this end, this conclusion, and ultimately, you know, our, my relationship. Is still intact and we still connect and we're still potentially gonna do more things in the future, but you have to, there has to be a line in the sand. And normally that's a production schedule for a financed project. You get money, you only have so much money and so much time to execute your vision. That is a beautiful thing and a horrible thing at the same time. Uh, in, in this case, it was the post-production that kind of concluded the project.
3: Yeah, I, I will concur with that. You could keep shooting and editing forever, but often it is budgets that are like, this is when we stop. But for us, for the Amy Tan film, um, I think what helped, because obviously she's still very active, um, is that we used one of her, no- not novels, um, one of her uh, autobiographies she wrote to, And um, the most recent one, was called Where the Past Begins, and it, uh, a writer's memoir. And she she wrote it originally thinking she was gonna be talking about her, her process and writing and how she writes and how she came to write, but it ended up becoming more of a memoir. And that's, uh, and she said it herself that it was an unintended memoir. And that's where we got our title for the film because we delved into all of her books and just talking to her in general, but that one book sort of served as a semi framework for how we were going to tell her story. So we we went through her life history from um, when she was born to now and through her novels in sort of chronological order. And then what she's doing now. And that's why it did sort of have an end, even though she is still working and she is still writing. We stopped it at that book,
1: you know, um, both of the f- in both films. The outdoors is actually quite important um, for Um, Amy Tan, um, she spends a lot of time looking at birds and, you know, um, it seems like it's a place of solace and, um, and refuge, whereas for Chuck, the outdoors is kind of a scary place and interested in hearing a little bit more about the use of, like, the outdoors and how that helped tell the story. And especially, I guess, like, for Benjamin, I'm kind of curious because it's, like you were saying, you're kind of using your role as a filmmaker to help draw him out. And it, it almost seemed like a little bit of therapy that was happening throughout the film. Um, yeah, so if you could share a little bit more about, um, yeah, utilizing the outdoors as part of the story story and the.
2: So anyone who hasn't seen this film, uh, the outdoors is very, important uh and it and it has a whole bunch of different meaning meanings for our for chuck Connolly the artist uh mostly because he i mean i don't want to say a recluse but he was hyper isolated inside his house and the idea for him to go out and do these things you you could find motivation to get him out there uh that you could convince chuck Connolly to go out but there needed to be what are we doing? What's, what's happening? Why is this the most important thing? Why is it more important than me painting inside my house and building out my life's collection? Uh, and for Chuck, that uh, for me, that was a hard question to ask. What can I possibly, how can I possibly convince this guy that is so fixed and has such a complete understanding of the art that he's creating and that he is working on inside this house, there was a lot of contention. There was a lot of arguments. There was a lot of back and forth um, about doing anything outside, but um, to kind of, the the experience is meditative in a lot of ways because uh, once we got our subject, once Chuck was outside, we finally got him outside and it went bad a whole bunch of times. It probably went bad more times than we incorporated in the film. We incorporated a couple instances um, where things went a little south, but. The experience of being with him and him painting outside and experiencing all the variables that are uncontrollable, for instance, everything inside of his household is controlled. It's highly controlled by him. Uh, And watching him kind of embrace those things, uh, it it was a very beautiful thing to witness. It was a very uplifting thing to witness because, you know, the film that I made, uh, even though it, it, it it might seem like an illusion, the first 55, 56 minutes of the film takes place inside his house in a very isolated fashion. Uh, from a post-production standpoint and from a filming standpoint, making that isolated indoor 55 minutes of content engaging and feel fast and feel like it's pulling uh, a story through was a, a, a you know a very large challenge for my team. We spent a lot of time figuring out how we could utilize these spaces in ways that keep things very engaged and, you know, from a cinematic standpoint, very vibrant. Um, But again, uh, when we were outside with Chuck, when we finally, and then he started embracing and started painting inside and we started going on little trips. It was a pleasure, it was a joy because even if he didn't want to admit it, even if, if he was here uh, as part of this conversation right now and he'd be like, I'm the same guy, nothing changed. It's all an act. Like Whatever he would have said as a showman, as a very engaging character uh, in this circumstance, the reality is we all cumulatively felt a lot of joy. Uh, so it, like, it was therapy for the whole crew and, and we started, seeing that, you know, there's nothing, there's no big significant elements that happen in this film. This is, there's no big explosion, there's no war, there's no... So the, the character curve and the plot is very, very subtle all the way through. Uh, so again, so even in an experience where you're outside with our subject who's been inside for so long and doesn't want to do these things, it's basically like therapy for the whole crew and everyone's experiencing that joy and you kind of have that sensation be like oh my god this is the end this is the film Mm -hmm. him being outside and embracing this moment for five minutes that's as real as it's going to be for any human being that moment and that's kind of what the goal of the film was showcasing that very small transition
1: yeah, and we have one of the audience members wondering if he retreated back to the house or if he's um, still continuing to go outside.
2: Completely retreated back to the house as a product of mm. COVID and everything that's been going on in this crazy year. But there are a lot of positives. Um, I'm not going to delve into all of the positives. There are a lot of positives in his life now. Um, you know, he's in, uh, you know, he has a, a new wife that I don't, don't want to kind of. But like there are positive things, and he's expanded his world. And now that um, you know everyone's getting vaccinated, we're going to all connect and kind of regroup and follow up and kind of hopefully continue on. Maybe not from a filming standpoint, but kind of continue on you know friendship and a journey outside. But yeah, there was a retreat. But I think uh, Chuck Connolly internally uh, is a different, uh, a more sound. Uh, a more confident and a healthier person mentally, physically, just in general. I think that um, even though he was stuck inside his house, just like everyone else for the last 15 months, and it could have just turned, us it could have spiraled for him. I, and almost like if you watch our film, you'd be like, oh my God, COVID is gonna spiral this guy into oblivion. It didn't happen and everything is good for now. So we're, we're excited about that.
3: Uh, yes, for um, Amy for, for Amy Tan, for those who saw the film, I mean, for her, uh, the nature drawing, the nature journaling and um, drawing of birds uh, is something that she does entirely for herself. And it's, you know, you see throughout the film that part of what she deals with in her writing process is the immense outside pressure because she came to writing as a second career in life, um, and it was for her a way to you know find something that was more rewarding from the business writing that she was doing but um also her writing has been to process her uh emotions and the things that happened to her throughout her life and help her better understand herself and um her thinking and that is obviously what she would thrive off in writing but when all the outside pressure, which I think there are so many parallels with Chuck Chuck Connolly of like having to sell the painting, sell the books or being beholden to a publishing contract and having the pressure of having to deliver a book and not being able to just do it on your own terms, you know, um, it puts a crazy amount of stress on a person in general, but for her, her release is when she's doing things just for her just for the the joy of it and not because someone needs it or is asking for it you know she even says in the film oh if i'm drawing a bird by myself i can draw but if someone asks me to draw them for it draw a, a bird for them i can't do it and so i think that's where nature plays a huge part that it's not necessarily part of her writing but it helps her writing because it helps her clear her head and be able to do something for herself and You know, same with the other things in nature, um, you know, conquering fears and just finding different forms of release like the swimming with sharks and and whatnot.
1: Well, um, this is probably a question that y'all always get in these types of events, but I'm wondering what's next for you. Maybe Cassandra, if you could start.
3: Sure. Um, well, as a freelancer in film and, and in documentary, I've always got uh, more than one project going on at once. So I have a few different uh, film projects and um, I can't talk about all of them, but um, w- one project that I'm excited about is a documentary travel series about um, the different forms of sweat bathing all over the world. Um, and, you know, like the Finnish sauna, the Russian banya, the Japanese mushiburo and uh, Mexican Temescal, Turkish hammam. Uh, so traveling the world and experiencing those, and learning about their history and um, what people are doing with that in culture now, and how it can help mentally and physically. And then another film I'm working about is called, uh, working on is called Invisible Nation, and it is about um, Taiwan and uh, its fight uh, to be a democracy in the world where it is currently not recognized as a country and uh, seen through the eyes of several um, politicians and activists who are um, fighting for it, including their first female president.
1: Those sound like amazing projects. Can't wait, especially the one about the sweat bathing. That sounds fantastic. Benjamin, how about you?
2: Um, Maybe one day I'm going to continue doing work with Chuck. That's something that's very possible. Uh, Prior to uh, COVID, I was in the middle of a documentary film where I was profiling restaurant tours in in Manhattan, where I lived prior to Connecticut, Um, and I was doing a farm-to-table kind of, uh, you know, it's like an Anthony Bourdain type of series without Anthony Bourdain, but it was showing a network of restaurants uh, and where they sourced their food, and it was kind of full circle, that project uh, midway through went, uh, went dead. And uh, since then, uh, with the exception of one, all of the restaurants and uh, we were actually doing, uh, there were butcher shops, there's a lot of people we were profiling. Uh, most of them have gone out of business. I don't mean to laugh, it's devastating. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely devastating. And some of them have rebuilt their lives and their businesses and stuff like that. But now, as soon as everyone's in a place where we can start production back up, we're gonna pick that story back up. Now, originally this was a very lighthearted, very beautiful film that I was trying to make to kind of show how we process this food that we eat, how it connects people uh, in all sorts of industries in the city. And unfortunately now it's a much sadder piece, but, I'm going to revisit all of these places and kind of, and all of these business owners and kind of go through their struggles and see how we can kind of champion this piece into its new final product. Um, so that's kind of big on the agenda and so much work went into it. We were very much in the thick of production before the virus uh, kind of sweeps the whole, the whole world. So, uh, and then, and I'm in, and I'm, Like Cassandra, I'm in, I'm very very active. I'm in pre-production on other projects and currently doing other work as well, but that's the big focus right now.
1: Well, thank you both for being part of Seattle International Film Festival for joining us today. Um, Again, it's it's, uh, disappointing that we weren't able to have our third filmmaker with us, but thank you so much. And um, yeah, thank you again, Benjamin. Thank you, Cassandra. Thank you to the CIF staff for um, your- Thank you
3: so much for having us, Seattle International. Thank you, Su-Chan, and great to meet you, Benjamin. Yeah, thank you so much, Cassandra.
2: Love the film. I love the birds, by the way. I was, uh, when you were talking about the birds, I love that uh, Amy, I I felt like it was so out of left field uh, when she was painting the the pictures or drawing the sketches of the birds. It felt like that was fantastic. By the way, on a side
3: note. And I just wanted to say one of my favorite parts of uh, of Into the Light was when Chuck was giving the painting lesson to the other artist. I was just blown away. I was even blown away with how the cityscape turned out. You know. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. That was just one part that I liked. I liked
2: Thank the whole thing. You. Thank, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, as everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Again. Thank
3: you. Again. Thank you.
0: All right, that does it for today's episode. Remember, you can check out all of our 2021 roundtables and filmmaker interviews on the Siff website at siff.net/siffcast or subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to like and subscribe to Siff on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and check out the Siff website for more information on virtual screenings, educational programs, festivals, and more. SifCast is hosted and produced by Jeremy Croft and edited by Tom Wade and Peter Aguiar. You can learn more at sif.net slash SifCast. I'm Jeremy Croft. Thanks for listening to SifCast.